This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid in the Web Yeshiva with another installment in our Jewish Educators Book Club. And I am sitting today with Professor Shoal Stamfer of the Hebrew University talking about two hefty tomes that have recently been published by the Littman Library of Jewish Civilization. That, the name of that publisher in and of itself is, is hefty. One is uh, a, a, an expanded edition now translated into English of Professor Stamford's book, The Lithuanian, Lithuanian Yeshivas of the 19th Century, Creating a Tradition of Learning, and another volume, a collection of essays entitled Families, Rabbis, and Education, Traditional Jewish Society in 19th Century Eastern Europe. And these two volumes weigh in at over, uh, collected over 830 some odd pages, if I did the math uh, correctly, and they are a very important contribution to the field first and foremost, of Eastern European Jewish history, but also for we who are both interested in Jewish education as practitioners and as consumers of Jewish education, as well as people for whom Torah study in particular is chayenu v'yorech yamenu, our vocation, our avocation, the central focus of our, of our life, the two volumes uh, together uh, paint a very interesting picture of the the motherload of Torah study that we often draw from, and that is the Eastern European yeshivas. So I'm I'm interested, Joel. Maybe you can tell us a little more about what's covered in these two volumes, what the areas of focus are, if we take them uh, as a whole. Well, what's covered is a lot of the stages that I went through in my life and other people, I think, have gone through in their lives. Uh, not necessarily all in one volume in sequence. Uh, the book, uh, Families, Rabbis, and Education, includes a number of studies of basic elementary education in Jewish society. And I was very interested in how the cheder really functioned. What was traditional Jewish elementary education? And here I I was bothered very much by some of the frustrations that I sensed among educators. And I consider myself an educator not because of what I do at university, but because for a while I was a first grade teacher, and I realized teaching first grade is not easy at all. Mm-hmm. With university students, you can tell them, hang in there five more minutes, you need the grade, listen to what I say. With first graders, there are no games. If you don't have them, there's nothing that you can say that will get them. And I noticed among friends of mine who were teaching the frustrations of the lack of achievements compared to what they aspired to do. So I started looking a little bit more at the cheder as it really was in the past and how Jewish education really operated. Not what was said, but what was done. So I started, and this is going to be somewhat at the end, and I'll get back to Yeshivot. What did 
the graduates of the Cheder do when they studied, after they studied. So what do they do? The standard adult education program was to sit regularly in a base medrash and to participate in a chavratli mood, in a study group. You're studying Gemara, you're studying Mishnah, you're studying Halacha, saying Tehillim. This was done in groups. And it struck me that if the goal of the Cheder study, in which students in Cheder spent six, seven years studying Gemara... From up till about... Up to about, about the age bar thirty, uh, bar mitzvah, more or less bar mitzvah age. Then what are they doing? Studying in a study group in a chevra, studying Ein Yaakov, which is Midrash, or studying Halacha or Mishnah. Like why aren't they all studying Gomorrah? Mm. And then the it clicked, and I realized that people were spending an immense amount of time in Cheder. Children were spending an immense amount of time in Cheder studying Torah, but the system was not producing students who, coming out of Cheder, could open up a independently and make a laning. Now, I find making a laning of Gomorrah extremely challenging, right? It's not easy. You figure, so many students, so many days, so many hours, and that's all the studying. And then I realized that as a system, the cheder was not producing a huge masses of Talmidei Chachamim. It was producing Talmidei Chachamim, but a limited number. And then when I was thinking about what I was doing in education as a first grade teacher, or what some of my peers were doing, that our results in comparison were not so bad. Right. Because that's a critique that's often made about the Jewish day school uh, movement in the yeah. United States or, or, or Jewish education here in, here in Israel. But, uh, so when you compare yourself to a, an unreal model, an image of the past that everybody who came out of Cheder could open a shas and just start cutting through the Tosfos, so of course we're all failures. Right. But when you compare what you're doing to the realities, mm -hmm. then we're not doing so badly. I'm not saying we shouldn't do better, but we're not doing so badly. Right. And I began to think about the importance in general of taking a look at what really happened and understanding how things worked. Right. Then, what for me was equally challenging and fascinating, coming from an American high school and not yeshiva background, then going to yeshiva, it was quite curious to me how yeshiva worked. Because you have students who are studying pretty intensively, no grades, no tests, they're not taking the classes all that seriously, but they're learning a great deal on their own. And I was very curious, how do two different educational systems operate in such different ways? And Meaning school versus yeshiva. School versus yeshiva. And one of the things that really interested me, and then this I went into kind of in detail, is how is 
achievement measured in, in Western schools and what is taught in Western schools. Now, one of the things about yeshivas that I noticed is there was almost no writing. And certainly, written examinations were not very central in the uh, framework of study. And what was very important was the dynamic of the class, which was very argumentative. Uh, you know, after a while you get into it and the point of the, of the st study in Shear is to ask Akasha on the Rebbe, right. see if you can mess up the, uh, right. his shot, see if you can make Akasha that will force him to shift what he's saying. And this was very different from the classes I went to in college where everybody sits down scribbling in their notebooks memorizing everything the teacher says so they can spit it spit back on a right. test. And certainly no one would imagine that they could trump the professor. And even if they would, you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> right. I mean, you're you not looking for trouble. And it was brought home to me, this was while I was studying yeshivot, when I was uh, visiting a relative and I saw a note on the refrigerator from the his, my, his son's teacher saying, your son is such a good student, he's always prepared, he always has an answer. And I thought it was very nice. And then I came home and I, had my, I sent my son to study with the Rebbe Gomorrah. He was in grade school, but I wanted him to learn the Gomorrah is wonderful before he finds out in school that it's supposed to be <laughs> A, uh, a load. Yeah. So I sent him to a rabbi a burden, uh, that he liked very, very much. And the rabbi said to me, listen, your son is very good. He, he asks has a such good questions. And then I realized that you've got two educational systems. The one is push, pushing for questions and the other, and the other is pushing for answers. And that mm -hmm. led me to consider kind of deeper ways, what are the differences between the two systems? So it's very interesting how uh, your own education, your experience as a father of children going through schooling has informed your work as a scholar, uh, as a researcher, and as, as a historian. Um, you know, that's, uh, uh, an awful, in my case, an awful lot is coming has come from my life's experience, right. things that I've done. Uh, uh, it, it's informed me things. Right. I, I did a lot of work on marriage. And right, there are a number of essays in the Families, Rabbis, and Education book about marriage, about women's role. I want to ask you about that in a moment, about gender. Uh, but to just to go back a second, this question of how, in other words, the, the questions that come to you in the middle of the night, in the shower, wherever it is that the questions come to you while wearing your, your academics hat, not your first grade uh, teacher hat, not your, not your father hat, um, the methodological questions that you then have to then put into practice to do the work of academic scholarship. So then where do you turn? That is, what are the, what are the, what are the tools for somebody that wants to research what was the life of a Cheder Yingle uh, in 1850 
um, like? What did he know? What did he learn? What did they accomplish? You know, as a as a as a class, um, where do, where does the scholar turn for that? Well, actually, a scholar is probably a little heavy for me, and I don't I don't quite see myself in the Talmud Chacham category. This that's for people who are well, studying Gemara. Well, that's debatable, but I mean, a scholar, a, a just, an academic. I'm just a historian. Okay, a historian but, is also uh, a form of scholarship, uh, as I recall. Well. It's a form of scholarship, but here I'm going to go off the topic and okay. then I'll come back. Uh, I, I think it's important to keep perspective. I, I was on a committee to set up a program for the study of history in religious high schools. and I, we, we came up with a nice program, but at the first meeting, different people, including myself, were asked to say, what does their anima mean? And I said... My anima mean is the most important things that children have to study in high school is Torah. And history is secondary. The basis of our identity is from what we learn from the Rebbe or from the Rav and not from what we learn from history. History is interesting, it's enlightening, it can sharpen our minds, but it's not at the core. And I think it's important you know, not to lose perspective to make it more important than it is. And the same way I think that real scholarship is uh, Torah scholarship or knowledge of text. So what I do is I try to make sense out of what I see and I think it's useful sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's without any value. Otherwise I wouldn't do it. But at the same time bim komov in this place. In any case uh, so there's no, I don't have any magic method. One of the things I look at is memoir. I use a lot of memoirs and descriptions of what life was like in different contexts. But then I also try to look at what's not being said. You know, the, what I would have expected that didn't show up. And then I read in different literatures, in sociology, I talk to people, I listen. It's, uh, I'm kind of eclectic in my approach. Generally, I tend to look for the economic basis for what's happening, because I tend to feel that without mm-hmm. finances, nothing else yeah. works. There's a, one of the delightful essays in, uh, in the book is uh, The History of the Pushka, the charity box, which is a, a very nice uh, piece that plays into this interest that you have. Well, I really like the Pushkin article. And I got into it because I was interested in fundraising for Yeshivot and the Pushka and the competition over the Pushka. So that was kind of dreary. And then I suddenly asked, how come Jews have Pushkas? And non-Jews don't have pushkas. Because mm-hmm. Jews like, are not so different from non-Jews. They're non-Jews want to give help. They want their, they're also concerned about the needy. So why is it that you have the pushka among the Jews and not among the but non-Jews? In the, in the church there's a charity box. Yeah, you have. And that's the same uh-huh. as the pushka in Shul. Uh-huh. Oh, so you there do. there's no difference. Uh-huh. But I was wondering... How come they don't keep it in their home? And you don't have a home pushka in any society except for the Jews. Uh-huh. 
once I realize that there's a kasha, you know, why is it among Jews and nowhere else, then that led me to begin to try and see the dynamics of the pushka, and that led me to the technology of the mm-hmm. pushka, and the role of women in the pushka, and ritualization uh, among... That a woman puts wi- a coin in before she lights candles, yeah. before she's with frishkala. Yeah, so I thought for me, this became a, a lever to really understand a part of the religious world of Jewish women. But it came because I was trying to figure out... The finances. Why is it... It started with my interest in finances, and then it came because I said, so why do Jews have it and not non-Jews? Because Michora, everybody should have it. So, that, that's... It, it's, I can't really explain a methodology that led me to ask that question. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like a, an earth-shaking question, but it, it came to me. Uh, the, the question of... Um, the, the difference between the ideal, uncovering the difference between the ideal and the real, between a community's you know, self-stated aspirations for itself versus what really was. Well, that's, on one plane, the work of a historian. On another plane, the, the uncovering the difference between the historical reality versus our nostalgic memory for how we would like it to have been, you alluded to in this question of, well, did every little child coming out of Cheder know Shas backwards and forwards? But let's flip that question. And this is particularly important for our, for our work as, as Jewish educators, as students of Torah, as teachers of Torah. Part, only part, but part of what fuels our work is a sense of nostalgia, a sense that what we're engaging in is not only uh, obviously very important is a, is a, is a religious lifestyle of, of great import, but is also authentic, that kind of sense that we have that what we're doing is the way it's always been done. Now the more sophisticated amongst us know that it's not actually the way it was always done, but yet we still somehow you know, turn a half-blind eye to the historical consciousness that we might have, and we live in this ahistorical reality of uh, of what the curriculum was like. I think one of the interesting things a number of years ago, you made a presentation to our TID Fellows program, and you spoke about Chavruta. And you you opened it with a discussion of you know asking them what they think the role of chavruta of studying in pairs together, particularly in the context of preparing for Gemara, but in general. And of course, everybody's certainly committed to this idea that well, there's a line in the Gemara that says oh chavruta o mituta that it's more important than anything else. It's it's preferable even to to, to the absence of chavruta would mean would mean death. Uh, if you didn't have a study partner, partner you're, as, you're as good as dead. When in fact, in reality, historically speaking, it's not how yeshivot were organized. It's a rather late uh, innovation. The reasons for it, I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain, are, are quite surprising. They're count, they were counterintuitive to most of the uh, educators in the room during that, during that seminar. Um, and it's, it's unsettling to some, to some educators or some students to discover that, in fact... You know, the power of this nostalgia, it's not exactly the way. It doesn't mean that the way we're doing it isn't better or isn't better for us and for our times. 
but how do you how do you experience this tension between the historical uh, the consciousness that you bring to it as a historian versus the nostalgia that we we would like to feel that we that we make use of or would like to make use of to, to power and to energize our work as educators uh, I think the first thing I have to say is I'm not consistent <laughs> I'm really not consistent I nostalgia has a very powerful effect on me at the same time I think that you know Moshe Emet, Torah Emet, truth is a very important thing. And when nostalgia brings us to ignore the truth, I think we're doing something very, very wrong. Especially since I think that the truth is far more powerful and far more inspiring than nostalgia. Uh, the images of people in the past as being people with no Yetzirah, no problems, no competition, no personal concerns, makes them in a certain way midgets. Because if you're totally devoted to Torah and you have no personal negiot or no personal concerns, then everything you achieve is really easy. Now, I think it's that when one points out the very human realities that it makes the achievements all the more impressive. You had, for example, in Volozhin competition, very bitter competition, to be head of the yeshiva. And you don't have to be terribly familiar with the yeshiva world today to know <laughs> that almost every yeshiva has gone through some kind of a power, power struggle. struggle and it's everywhere. So you can either pretend it wasn't there, or you can say that that's part of the dynamics of the yeshiva structure, which is very weak uh, uh, organizational structure. It's very built on charismatic individuals. And one of the most important things is that people who are involved in very bitter struggles at the same time usually are able to maintain control and to keep this, the competition or the struggle within very clear and important limits. And I think that's a, a much greater achievement. So I think that looking at the past unrealistically makes the individuals in the past very small. I think it creates a general reality in which everybody knows that nothing is really as is said. And thirdly, and this is what I find very important that the world of the Shivot and Lita and the world of Jewish society was one that was constantly in flux. It was always changing. <laughs> there were new challenges and new solutions. And I think that if people feel today that they have to maintain 
exact, the exact forms that existed in the past, then first off, they are denying what was done in the past because the people in the past were innovators. And when you want to say you want to imitate everything that was done in the past, you're saying, I'm against right. innovation. Right. So that's the ultimate the paradox. Parad paradox. And secondly, the fact is that today we do need new frameworks because we have new realities. And if you feel inhibited, you're not going to be as creative as you should. So I see there's an importance on the one hand of showing the complexities of the past, but at the same time to show the greatness of many characteristics of individuals and societies in the past. And you have to be nostalgic for the good, but not nostalgic for everything. Right. Uh, One of the, um, you know, we've mentioned already a number of times in the course of uh, yeah, this in the course of this short conversation, Volozhin, and of course, when we talk about Eastern Europe, uh, the Lithuanian yeshivas or Eastern Europe uh, writ large, so Volozhin overshadows uh, many others. Of course, it's important to remember that there were many different yeshivas, each with their own character, mm -hmm. some, of course, very different, others consciously trying to imitate the, the Volozhin model. In the book uh, about the Lithuanian yeshivas, more than half of the volume is, of course, dedicated to to Belogian, uh, to Belogian itself. What are going to be some of the things that uh, a reader of the book is going to discover that likely going to surprise him about Belogian, this mother of yeshivot, this fount of nostalgia for how it always was? Well, let's see. You know, one of the problems when you write a book is, or work on a topic <laughs> is you think right. everybody knows all of this. Right. It's hard you know, sometimes to guess what people don't know and I sometimes get overwhelmed with myself anyway, so that's a problem. I think, for me, one of the interesting points that I know people got excited by, and not necessarily posit positively excited, was in the last years, the Yeshiva of Voloshim was under great government pressure. Right. Now, there were, there's an aspect here that I couldn't understand until I really worked on the sources. And this and the answer surprised me. What surprised me? But we should just maybe say for the listener, we're talking about the, the Russian government coming right. in and trying to and with a heavy really, hand real pressure on the on the Yeshiva in this is eighteen eighty nine, ninety, ninety one, ninety two and it closed the Yeshiva. Right. And it was a little hard for me to understand because there were a number of other yeshivas and the Russians didn't... Why are they picking on Velozhin? Yeah, why was... And Velozhin was actually illegal. It was registered. And it wasn't clear why they were picking on Velozhin. And there was a view that was common among lots of Jews that the Russians were, didn't know what was going on. They weren't so smart. But I've read enough not to underestimate the Russian government. They knew a lot. May not have known everything, they knew a lot. And then somebody found for me, found and gave to me, I didn't find it, they found material in the Russian archives of the Russian secret police reports about Voloshin. And it turned out that part I had known, in Voloshin there was a struggle over who would be the uh, heir of the Nazi. Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin was old, and the question was who would succeed him as head of the Yeshiva? Now, 
Reb Chaim Brisker, or Chaim Salafechik, was in Voloshan at the time, and he was, by all accounts, an incredible Gemara teacher. And the students loved him. When he gave Shear, the base medrash was packed. When the Nitziv gave Shear, the base medrash was less packed. Even though, in many respects, the Nitziv's derach in Limud has had a stronger long-term impact, I think, than Reb Chaim. Uh, but that's, that's an interesting uh, it, it's, it, point for it's maybe surprising. a different conversation. That's, but it's the Nitziv, the godless of Nitziv lasts till today. But the students, the Yeshiva Bachrim, came more to Rab Chaim's Shirim than to the Nitzivs, because Nitziv wasn't a, an exciting teacher. And so the natural heir in terms of popularity was Rab Chaim Brisker. However, he was not an administrator. And a Yeshiva needs somebody who's going to talk with the money men, who's going to write thank you notes, who's going to keep an eye on the budget. Yeah. And this is something that Nitziv did. And Nitziv was well aware of Reb Chaim's terrific teaching ability, but also was aware of the fact that he was not a person who could keep control of a budget. Now, in, a, in institutions we're familiar with, like universities, you have a board of directors, you have a, a general, a mancal, a, a executive director, executive director you have division of responsibilities. Fundraisers. You have division of responsibilities. The Lithuanian yeshiva did not have an institutional model to build on. There wasn't something like a institution we're familiar with that they could imitate. And there, the head of the yeshiva had to do everything. So the Nitziv, seeking a person who could combine Torah with administration quite naturally thought of one of his sons who was indeed Reb Chaim Berlin, a great Talmud Chacham and an administrator. Now today if he was walking around people would be awed by him. Putting him in the same room with Reb Chaim Soloveitchik was not it fair. Was, yeah. it was a, I mean, who could compete with Reb Chaim Brisket? So the Nitziv was pushing for his son. The students were pushing for Abchayim Brisker. The arguments got violent, started demonstrations, vandalism, throwing stones, fist fights between supporters of each side. And the Russians were watching everything. Watching, following, and the Russians said something very simple. Look, if the, if the, Jew, the students in the yeshiva don't have respect for the head of the yeshiva, what's going to be when it comes to the tsar? Mm -hmm. This has got to be stopped before uh -huh. it gets out of control. This in other words, if there wasn't sufficient kavodah Torah, it would undermine all respect for authority, authority going right up to the, the tsar of Russia. And the, the role of Jews in revolutionary movements was no secret. Yeah. This never crossed my mind. And then the Russian government decided we have to act. Now I'm going to add... And these were documents that were only... Secret uh, sec reports. And, and they only became available to researchers after the fall of communism. Right. And yeah. Now I'm filling in gaps here. But it's the, I, 
It's the way things work. Let's say today in New York City, you want to close a yeshiva. You don't like what they're teaching in the yeshiva. Or the same in Israel. You say they're teaching something which we don't like, they're violating federal laws or state laws, we're going to close the yeshiva. Five minutes they're in Supreme Court, mm-hmm. or in Israel they're doing a bagatz. You can't do it. Right. They'll, they'll drive you crazy in court. How do you close a yeshiva? You bring in the fire inspectors, you check the wiring, you say, the wiring is in such a terrible state, every minute there are students in the building, it's endangering their lives. We have the greatest respect for Torah, precisely because we have respect for Torah, we are concerned for the well-being of the students, close the building right now, Uh it's too dangerous to continue at usage, and when they get a building permit and it passes the fire examination, then they can reopen. Then you can drive them crazy for the next 20 years with the permits. This is the way. You want to get something closed, you go around the side. You don't do, seek a head-on collision. Now, the Russians were not happy with what was going on in the yeshiva. So they started pushing secular studies. Because they realized quite correctly the yeshiva was not in favor of secular studies. However, what was might perhaps it was surprising is that when the Russians demanded secular studies, the Nitziv agreed. And there is rich, rich documentation that there were secular studies for some of the students in Volozhin, maybe 50, maybe more, which was maybe say maybe 20-30% of the students and the Nazi made it very clear that if he was pushed the number of students involved would grow. The Nazi himself was not against secular studies per se. When we talk about secular studies we're talking about Russian, Russian language, literature, geography, arithmetic, but the Nazi said there's a time for this either before Yeshiva or after but not during yeshiva study. But when the Russian government came and started putting real pressure, he said that if there is no alternative, then you have to agree to some degree of secular studies. This was surprising to a number of people because Reb Chaim Berlin writes in his... uh, will and testament that his father closed the yeshiva rather than than allow secular secular studies. studies. But there is page after page after page of detailed reports of secular studies, what they read each week, what they were tested on, what they knew, and uh, there is so much evidence. Plus there's memoirs of students who studied secular studies in the yeshiva. So you have to say that there's a, a kasha. Right. It, it's hard to understand why Rab Chaim Berlin said what he said, but there's the so much evidence. Actually, one, one of the, there's a lengthy chapter uh, at the end of the section dealing with Volazhin on the questions of the closing mm-hmm. of the issue. One of the interesting things, the gap between nostalgic reality and struggle reality is, uh, I think, if we were to you know go out to, to yeshiva today of the of the of the Zionist stripe of the Haredi stripe and ask people 
uh, how many how many students were in Velazhin? People tell there were two thousand, three thousand, because we're accustomed to such things of these large yeshivas, Demir, Panovich, etc. When in fact, how many students were they learning yeshiva at its height in 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 Velazhin? You know, couple. I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question because <laughs> the answer. I mean, is if you see pictures, if you see pictures of the yeshiva building, which still stands today. It's, I remember the first time I saw the picture of the yeshiva building. If you, if you Google Velazhin Yeshiva, you'll, you'll see a picture of it. It's, it's a rather small, modest building. It's not what we imagine uh, a campus. Uh, uh, you think of, uh, you think of uh, any, any yeshiva that has there today uh, dwarfs it just in physical size. Well, you're really right. Like, you're totally right. I, I spent two years in Russia, uh, two and a half years. I went in 1989, beginning of 1990, at the end of the communism, and I was there for two years. And I was working in Jewish education. And at one point I took a three-day vacation, four days, and I went to Belarusia. And this was still in the time of the communists. And I went to Velazhin. I had this idea... But basically, I wanted to buy the building, <laughs> and I wanted to take it apart and move it brick by put brick. It, and no, yeah. stone by stone, and ship it to Israel and rebuild the yeshiva here. I had a great. It was a great idea. Uh, that's and a real get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> well, you know, at that time in Russia, at the end of yeah. communism, you, you could, could do almost built the building for a few thousand. But First thing is, I got to Voloja and I saw the building was built out of bricks and not out of stones. If it's built out of bricks, to take apart a brick building and to move it, that's, uh, it's extremely difficult. So I dropped the idea. Then I went inside the building and it was then a kind of a, uh, it was a kind of a bakery and I went in just to look around and I took, a, I took a glass of water because I wanted to say a bracha in the building of the Voloshni Yeshiva. And I was stunned by how small it is. And a few years ago, a friend of mine who deals with architecture gave me the architectural plans of the building as it is. Now, all the sources, almost all the sources I have describe the Yeshiva as having in its heyday 350, 400 students. The number of students the yeshiva submitted to the government when they asked the government asked for the number of students was about 200. Mm-hmm. So I figured, you know, they're hiding the numbers. They're giving the they're giving the government what it wants. Uh, the opposite of what happens in some yeshiva today, where there's over-reporting for right. financial right. Uh, it was, it was under-reporting for the right. same right. concerns. But. I looked at their architectural plans. I do not understand how, how they fit that many people could fit in the yeshiva at the same time. I just don't see how the, how it could be. It right. had to have been incredibly crowded. And I know that stu- there were tables in the yeshiva. I don't see how they could have fit students yeah. with tables and an Aron Kodesh and a Bima. So... I don't know how many there were. Maybe the numbers they gave the government were really true. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was around 250. 250 could have fit with difficulty in there. So, 
I don't know. But uh, there's no harm. Yeah. I tell students, if you want to be a good historian, you have to practice saying, I don't know. There, there's so many other questions we could talk about. I just, I'll ask you, and to answer briefly, the same question about the surprises that we discover about Philosian. In, in the uh, volume Families, Rabbis, and Education, there's a, the opening section deals uh, largely with this question of families and with gender. What are going to be some of the surprising things that a reader is going to discover about the life of women in Eastern Europe, the life of women's education or the experience of women's education, uh, the role of, of uh, gender uh, that it played? Uh, I mean, it's uh, anachronistic to speak of gender, but uh, it's a modern, these are modern, uh, modern categories. We're talking about gender studies, etc., but... Well, I'll tell you, although I must preface it that when my daughter was little, she once said, Abba is a teacher, you ask him what time it is, and it takes him an hour to tell you. So (laughs) it's a simple question, but I'll try and give a a short answer as best as I can. I had two really big surprises, I think, looking into some of these topics. One is that in Jewish society, traditional Jewish society, say around 1850, earlier, later, there was a lot, a lot of divorce. And I came to it... Also something that's going to be surprising for people to yeah. realize. Yeah. And I, I came to it kind of by looking at statistics from the time I saw some sources, and they referred to evidence that there was about 30% divorce, which is a lot. Yeah. And I was inclined to say that this, something is wrong with the statistics, that the marriages weren't recorded because you had to pay for it and divorces were recorded. That was my instinct, you know, because data that doesn't make sense is usually just wrong data. It's not, there's no kedusha to numbers. But then, I, this is also autobiographical, I had a, an acquaintance who was married, and the marriage didn't work out. And he wouldn't give his wife a get. He said, I'm betraying my family and generations, that mm-hmm. this divorce is not something that happens in a good Jewish yeah. family. And this really troubled me. And I began to look into the issue of divorce more and more. And then I realized that Jewish ideals in Eastern Europe were almost the the reverse of ideals in non-Jewish society. The ideal, I'm not talking about reality, but the ideal was that a man would study Torah all day and a woman, the wife would support him. And you do not have this in non-Jewish society. It just doesn't exist at that time. Certainly you have maybe realities, but not an ideal. And then I read some literature here as the sociology paid off on the dynamics of family structure and also divorce. And one of the key elements in divorce is that in an unhappy marriage, if a woman feels that she can live better after a divorce, then it's worth getting divorced. And if a woman supports herself, obviously that after divorce, there is life after divorce. And, and she's Jewish, not going to have to pay alimony. Right. And Jewish society was one in which women were encouraged to work and women did work. This is the ideal framework for 
enabling divorce. And therefore, when we see 30% divorce rate, what we're really seeing is 70% of the couples were happily married. And the fact that they didn't get divorced was not because the woman was trapped, but because she could have, but she didn't want to. Uh This is a, a reasonably high level. A very low divorce rate doesn't mean that everybody is happy, it just means that, that a lot of people are trapped. And I pointed out to this acquaintance that the Rabbi Yosha Ber Soloveitchik, the father of the Soloveitchik line, was a divorcee at the age of 19, he divorced. The Nitziv's second wife, who he loved very much, had been previously married and she got divorced. He had been widowed first. What? He He was widowed. She was divorced. And she was divorced. And you find over and over Gdoli who were divorced. This happened. And the question is not does that, what do, were there unhappy marriages? But what you do when a marriage is unhappy? And I think that in this respect the realities today are becoming closer to realities that once were And what's happening today is not that the traditional Jewish family is collapsing, but that we are returning to high expectations for marital happiness, and we realize that if a given shidduch doesn't work out, then you have to try again. And that's the traditional Jewish model. The model of very low divorce is a non-Jewish model which comes really from the German bourgeois, in which the husband proved he was a real man by supporting his wife, and a real woman would not go out and work. She would be dependent on her husband, and totally dependent on her husband. This is and because of this, the, or maybe this is a contributing factor, the role of yeshiva study in Germany was quite different than it was in totally, Poland and Lithuania. Totally different. And what happened is that a non-Jewish external model crept in without anybody even realizing that they were switching models. So well, as you pointed out earlier, we don't like to admit that non-Jewish influences are present in contemporary Jewish life. Um. <laughs> it's, it's there. I, I was stunned the first time I saw a page of a medieval Latin legal text with the classic legal text and the, super and commentary. the, and the commentaries, it looks just looks like, like a Dr. Then I realized the, pers- the, the non-Jew who was the first to print all the Shas oh, right. previously had printed these Latin, Latin texts. Last question, which obviously has to be answered uh, briefly, otherwise we could record a week's worth of conversations. As someone who lives with one foot in the world of, uh, of uh, contemporary religious Jewish life here in Israel, but also a keen observer of, of uh, Jewish life uh, around the world, particularly in the former Soviet Union, um, and with somebody who has one foot in the world of historical research. Um, as an observer of the contemporary yeshiva scene, both the right-wing or Haredi yeshiva scene, uh, both here and abroad, as well as the Zionistic or modern Orthodox yeshiva scene, what are some of the 
phenomena or trends or characteristics that are taking place now. I mean, I, I think of the, the debates that we're going through now, for example, about the, the renewal or the replacement of the Choktal, uh, dealing with some kind of accommodation of uh, army service for the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students who currently don't serve, and that perennial discussion about the role of the yeshiva in their life, in a greater Israeli life, what that means for the army, what that means for, for greater Israeli society. What are some of the trends that you see or some of the phenomena that you see and you think to your historical knowledge and training and say, oh, what we really need to be doing is this or what we really should be bearing in mind is that and you know, if only we were more conscious of the past, it would help us in our decision-making now and the present? Well, I don't think... I think historians hopefully have a better understanding of what was going on in the past than people who are not historians. Just because we spend more time reading, so we should know more, hopefully. In terms of the present, I don't see why historians should be any smarter oh, you're modest. Than, no, not modest, I'm just being practical the same way when I see advertisements about political moves a government should take or not take and you see professors of mathematics or professors of uh, sociology and, I, and I'm saying, you know why should they know any more than the man at the grocery store who's checking out money, just because you know mathematics doesn't mean you know What's the best political policy? So, first off, I want to say that. Okay. Secondly, I want to say that if I had a really simple solution, it would already have been in the newspapers. Uh, the finances today of Yeshiva world never existed in the past. It's just never, like we're in a totally different situation. So that's that such a significant portion of the population can... The government is willing be full -time to support... full-time Torah study. Right. So we're dealing in a different ballgame. The rules are different. What worked, worked. What doesn't work, doesn't work. So that you, I really think it's very important to forget the past and not to get locked into the past. The past described a reality in which... There was very little, very few resources available for Torah study. Today it's all different. So things have to be different, and I'm not sure a historian can help very much. What I can say, and this is not as a historian, just like as a, as a person. I went to public school in America, and... I know exactly what it means to be the only kid in your class with a kippah, to be the kid who eats a sandwich when everybody else is eating in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. It's not fun, and I went through 12 years of it. I hated it, but I got used to it. And when I came to Israel, I took some psychological tests once. You know, they have these things in university. You get 15 shekels if you take some tests. <laughs> I messed them all up because they were testing group influence and like and you it would, didn't work you on me. trained to be impervious to that. Yeah. Now, when you have people who've grown up in a religious environment all their lives and they've only seen people who are just like them, 
you throw them into an environment where they are a minority, where people are doing things in a very different way, they're not ready for it. And I don't think it's the right thing to do to put them in a situation which is likely to lead them, and I'll say chas v'sholom, not to be maintain the same commitment to mitzvot. And I'm not saying if we should have created this reality or not. This is a reality. And I think that whatever is done should be done with great concern that it should make things better and not make Here things we're specifically talking about the integration of right. uh, ultra-Orthodox Yeshiva right. students into Armenia. Uh, somebody, somebody who's gone through that world, you put him outside, it's going to be a shattering experience. Uh, it's, it's, it's not fun being different. I remember vividly so many times putting tefillin on on a bus or on a plane and everybody looking at me, what is this weird guy doing? But I had to do it. It was manhanachat tefillin. It's not easy. And I can only say I did it partly and partly because I went through the ringer. Mm-hmm. But somebody who didn't go through the ringer, uh, okay. it's going to be hard. The two books are Professor Shaul Stamfer, Lithuanian Yeshivas of the 19th Century, and the collection of essays, Families, Rabbis, and Education, Traditional Jewish Society, 19th Century Eastern Europe, both published by the uh, Venerable Lippmann Library of Jewish Civilization. Uh, fascinating read, uh, particularly for those involved as uh, teachers of Torah, as students of Torah, people for whom the past has bearing on, uh, on the present. Thank you, uh, Shaul, for speaking to us about, about these books and about your, your work and your views in general.